This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. My guest in the studio today is Andrea Gutierrez, who is a doctoral student in the Department of Asian Studies here at the University of Texas at Austin, where she specializes in Tamil language and literature and also Sanskrit and Prakrit language and literature. Welcome to the studio. Hi there, Chris. Our topic today is going to be women in Tamil literary history. And in our notes that we've been exchanging, you mentioned female protagonism and female authorship. So let me just start in by asking you to describe very broadly today's conversation, and then we can get into more specifics as we go. Mm-hmm. So as most people know, male-dominated narratives and male authorship and also male-centered stories have been the norm throughout history and literature until the latter half of the 20th century. So it's no surprise that Asian literature and epics, if you think of something like Homer's Odyssey or other classics like the Ramayana, the story of King Rama in early India, you see male authors telling the stories, adventures, and histories of men. So we do see something quite different in early Tamil literature. Women play very prominent roles in all of the early Tamil epics, unlike most epics or ancient literatures of the world where a woman often only is a romantic partner to a male lead, but has no agency of her own beyond that of wife or beautiful lover. So we do see something atypical in the earliest period of Tamil poetry, the Sangam period, and in the early epics. Okay, so let's start off by talking about what the time period and where specifically we're talking about that these epics were produced. This is commonly referred to as classical India, the ancient period for this literature from about the 2nd century of the Common Era up through the 5th or 6th century of the Common Era. My texts today were composed in what is southern India, basically the area between Kanchipuram today, which is pretty close to Chennai, which was called Madras before, going all the way down to the southern tip of the peninsula of the subcontinent mostly on the eastern coast, but also including the region of what is today Kerala, the ancient Cherda country, the southernmost tip of India today. And you mentioned the Tamil language. So were these originally composed in Tamil? Yes, of course. Tamil language is the only language of South Asia which is recognizable from the ancient period in ancient literature as something that is more or less spoken Somewhat similarly today, um, of course, with some variation, today there are probably, what, 70 or 90 million Tamil speakers in India alone, as well as it being an official language in Sri Lanka, Singapore, and a common language and usage in uh, the eastern coast of Africa and diaspora as well. In ancient times, this part of South India had seen rule in some parts of it by Ashoka during the Mauryan Empire, but this part of the country largely had regional and local rulers and kings. Some were quite powerful empires themselves, like the Satavahanas, which was an Andhra kingdom in the Deccan region, or local rule by Tamil rulers, like with the Pandian kingdoms and the Chorda empires, very famous for their bronze sculptures, most people know. The Cherda in the far south 
and so on. And then also minor kings ruled in, in times of power vacuums between the empires. You mentioned Sangam. Can you explain what or, or when that was? Sangam refers broadly to the ancient period of poetic composition, probably dating, most scholars will say, from the first and second centuries of the Common Era. Mostly the poetry was written in the second century of the Common Era. It was named after the Sangams, the academies of writers and scholars that were associated together working in groups, or at least collectively their literature has been compiled into groups of these academies. Sangam literature very frequently features poems about women speaking to other women, and some were even composed by women. In fact, most of the romantic poetry in ancient Tamil, the Agam poems, as they are called, male poets put themselves into female roles hmm. and penned the voices of these heroines, female protagonists, who would be speaking, reciting these poems. We see very different dynamics at play than in most world literature, ancient or modern, although I'm not going to pretend and tell you that these were feminist works in a feminist era of the past. So today I'm talking about mostly this second century common era poetry, which was composed largely as entertainment for kings who were patrons of the poets. And I'm also going to talk about two of the five great epics in Tamil, the Silapatiharam, probably written mid-5th century of the Common Era, and the Manimekalai, probably composed about a century later. So what and how were, were women prominent in this particular literature? Let's take something that's widely used today to test the prominence of women in media. You might know about the Bechdel test which has been widely adopted in the last five or ten years as a way of evaluating media, including films, video games, graphic novels. The Bechdel test is interesting because it's data-oriented. So it can give us some structural criteria to evaluate a text's orientation as female-supporting or otherwise, and determine if the text expresses some sort of women's agency. Yes, I'm familiar with that test because I believe I've just seen several movies that fail it. <laughs> um, but for listeners who, who may not be, can you describe the criteria for us? Yes, of course. The test asks three simple questions. One, does this text or medium have at least two females in it? Two, do they talk to each other? And three, do they talk about something other than a man? Sometimes the test has, has a fourth question as well, which is, does the female have a name? Which is rather shocking. to think but, about. Yeah. So this test is uh, in widespread use today for film critique, and it's especially popular in European cinema boards, but it's also commonly used in the U.S., even by Entertainment Weekly. You can check the, the ratings of different films online. It's shocking that even today... Movies released in, the, in recent years, like you've mentioned, almost half of film releases fail this simple test. So even in the U.S., which is supposedly quite pro-women, we don't see female characters with names who have a role in a film that isn't as a sexual interest or concerning the woman's beautiful body and so on. So there's a group of uh, scholars in computer science today developing programs to apply the Bechdel test to all sorts of media and also using it for literary history as well. 
You mentioned that despite the female voice in the, in the ancient Tamil literature, that we're not talking about feminist literature in a feminist era. No. So how does the test play out with these pieces from the Sangam period? So it's not so bad, but also not as good as I had expected, given such prominence of women throughout all of Sangam poetry. I mean, you keep on reading poems told and the voices of women, and mm -hmm. so it seems so female dominant. But when I looked at it more structurally to do a study, you still see that, okay, discounting the war poems, a majority of the poetry is composed in women's voices. And yes, most often they are speaking to other women. But the Sangam poems don't often pass the third question of the Bechdel test, which is women talking about something other than a man. Uh. Actually, they do pass the test. They aren't talking about men typically, but they are describing their emotional experiences, um, feelings and thoughts that often are resulting from their relationships with men or what men have done to them, leaving them for work or for other women and so on. So on the surface, they appear to pass the test and do express women's innermost feelings, oftentimes without mentioning men. Most do pass the test. But under the surface, the woman's state is resulting from a man's actions. So they pass, but not entirely. And this surprised me, but only so much. But it is exceptional to have such a large corpus of historical literature written right. by women. Or told in woman's voice. Yeah, told in a woman's voice is not something that you see so dominant across the board. Yeah. Do we know anything about some of these women who authored these works? Mm-hmm. We have names for most of the poets. Some some poems are anonymous, of course. One of the most prolific Sangam poets of ancient times, the ninth most prolific, as I've calculated, was a woman, Oviar. She composed 59 of the 2,200-odd poems, so that's something like 2 or 3% of the total corpus. There were other female poetesses as well, at least 20 female poets, or poets with female names, that we know for certain, possibly up to 40. Many others have names which may be female or not, their pen names, and many poems are anonymous. So in reality, we already have a, a certain percentage, and the reality may be much larger than what we can statistically show conclusively. Do we know more about this poet that you mentioned, Alviar? Yes. Alviar is particularly interesting. She's quite a hero and, and treated... Um, almost with goddess-like status today. She lived from about 150 to 220 CE. She belonged to the Viraliard caste of dancers and singers, who at the time were very highly respected. Her dating is quite certain because she wrote to entertain a minor king under whose patronage she was. She seems to have been quite good friends with him, um, eating and drinking with him and so on. He was Arihaman Neruman Anchi of Takatur, an opponent of the Cherda monarch at the time. So we get little snippets of information about the historical lives of poets and regional kings and actual historical events and battles from the poems themselves. Remember that by about the end of the 2nd century CE, the great Mauryan Empire in India that was made so powerful by Ashoka had just about ended. At this time, also, the Ramayana was in the form in which we know it today. The laws of Manu had been composed in the form that is pretty much exactly what we have it as today. In the second century CE, during Ovia's lifetime, the Cherda dynasty, which is mentioned in the Ramayana, ruled in far southern India, 
The Pandyas ruled in the middle of what is Tamil Nadu today. Even the earliest Choras, who later became much more powerful, were ruling in part of Tamil Nadu at the beginning of the 2nd century CE and throughout that century. So we do find snippets about the dynasties and about people's daily lives in these poems. You sounded very optimistic earlier um, when we were discussing women's agency in this literature. And I still am, Chris. A little later, a few centuries after the ancient Sangam period ended, we see the creation of the great epics composed in Tamil, of which there are five. The two earliest, which are the best preserved intact, both have strong female heroines, although the epics were written by men. The male counterparts for these heroines are much weaker characters in the narrative, although they certainly have agency and enact um, the narrative trajectory as it is. The first epic, Silapatiharam, dating to about 450 CE, has a very strong female protagonist, Karnahi. Kanahi is the wife of rich merchant Kovalan, who had abandoned Kanahi for the possibly more beautiful and talented dancing girl Madhavi, with whom he has a daughter. Now, Kovalan had bought this dancing girl, Madhavi. They'd fallen in love. He ended up squandering his fortune on her. And when he realizes his mistake and returns to his wife Kanahi, she's now very poor. Kanahi gives to him one of her precious jewel anklets to sell so that they can make ends meet. He goes to Madurai to market to sell the anklet, and there people mistake this anklet for one that had been recently stolen from the king of Madurai, a Pandian king. They accuse Kovalan of stealing from the king, and some drunken royal soldiers end up chopping off his head since they think he's wanted for the crime. Then Kanahi finds out her husband has been killed in this dissolute city of Madurai, filled with debauchery, and that he was killed unlawfully and unrighteously. Well, there's a critique of rule and execution of law. Right. You do see a lot of critique of poor kingship in literature, and this is surely making a point here, a moral point. So, Kanahi curses the city of Madurai. She tears off her breast. She throws it at the city, and it starts on fire at her command. She does make an exception and allows good men, cows, truthful women, the handicapped, and children to survive. But uh, with her curse, most things are destroyed. Eventually, a chariot comes and takes her to heaven. It's her apotheosis, really, and she's deified as a goddess. I have to ask, does this work pass the Bechtel test? <laughs> it certainly does. There are numerous female characters who talk to each other. Virtually all are named. Most of the time they are talking about men, but in at least four passages I've found women talk to other women about something besides a man, and not in response to what a man had done in another episode of the epic. So the bulk of conversations do still revolve around men or are stories about historic men of legend. So you mentioned two epics. That was one. How about the second? Right. The work following this one, the Mani Mekhalai, is named after this daughter born of Kovalan from the first epic and the dancing girl Madhavi, this beautiful woman. In this second epic, Mani Mekhalai, being a Buddhist work composed for a Buddhist kingdom, it totally rejects romantic love and attachment. Hmm. Madhavi and her daughter Mani Meghalai decide that Mani Meghalai, as a 
pre-teenager, should join the Buddhist nunnery and renounce all men and worldly living. This epic is even more exciting from the standpoint of the Bechdel test, in that as a nun, Mani Megalai has rejected human passion and men altogether, and has dedicated her life to other things. She has another calling. Besides being a wife to a man, she feeds the hungry in Kanchi, in the city of Kanchi, during the long famine, and she serves there. You're mentioning uh, historical events in these epics with fictional characters. So are these completely fictional? Are they truly historical? Are they a combination? Hmm, a combination. Mostly the narratives are fictional, but we do have historical content, and they are telling history, as many histories that we read as history and we consider accurate are and do. These epics are largely not based on history if we conceive of history with the idea of it being lineages of kings and dynasties that we know in South India. Some of the legendary kings that are revered in the sub-stories in these epics were real kings in South India. For example, the Silapati Haram mentions Kayavaku, the king of the sea-girt Ceylon, right? Sri Lanka. Uh-huh. This king was Gajabahu I, who ruled from 171 to 193, common era, in what is today Sri Lanka. The same epic also mentions a Cherda king, Sanguttavan, who ruled about 50 years later, from 170 to 225 CE. These kings were already history at the time of writing the Silapati Artem and the Mani Meghalai, but these epics are historical recordings of kings from their own past, in the same way that anyone today who writes about past kings from centuries before is also writing history, as we call it. These are just embedded in very entertaining and beautiful stories. So are these stories still told? I know that a lot of the old epics are getting turned into soap operas now on television. So are these still stories that are repeated often? The tumble epics don't have the popularity over over the board as something like Ramayana or Mahabharata, where you have so many TV programs and movies made. But everyone in Tamil Nadu knows about Oviar, as well as two of the historical female poets who followed her and who took her name as well. So she's very famous. She appears in everything from calendars to movies to posters and buses. Kanahi, the heroine from the epic, is revered all across Tamil Nadu even today. There are shrines for her in temples, and entire temples dedicated to Kanahiyaman. Even in Sri Lanka, she's worshipped by the Buddhists as Patni. In Kerala, India, she's worshipped as Bhagavati. Hmm. So there are ideas about her that are still existing in South Indian Hinduism and in South Asian Buddhism. She's very much alive in, in the popular consciousness, and has been for over a millennium for sure. Although the actual historical kings mentioned in the Silapati Haram are sadly virtually unknown to everyone. Yeah, <laughs> Many people men, today are not important. Yeah. <laughs> Many people today are named Kanahi, in fact, after people will name their daughters wow. Kanahi as a beautiful name to choose, right? Excellent. And if you go to our website, there are links so you can see images of the goddess as she's currently worshipped, as well as some translations of the epics, uh, if you're interested in reading more. This has been really fascinating. I'd like to thank you for being with us today. And this has been another episode of 15-Minute History. We'll see you next time. 
For a transcript of this episode, images, and links to more information, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's the numerals 15minutehistory.org. You can access our full catalog of episodes free of charge at our website and through the iTunes U app for iOS or the Tunes Viewer app for Android. You can also access the 10 most recent episodes through the Apple Podcasts app, Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher, and Overcast. 15-Minute History is produced in partnership between Not Even Past and the Hemispheres Outreach Consortium. Our executive editor is Joan Newberger, and our technical editor is Christopher Rose. Our audio engineers are the awesome folks in the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services, Jacob Weiss, Morgan Honecker, Will Kurtzner, Samantha Skinner, and Michael Heidenreich. Special thanks also to Michael DeLeon, iTunes U Site Administrator with Project 2021 and Educational Innovation. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.